All right, welcome back, everybody, to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Building Lifelong Athletes Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. And today, we're going to talk all about the different types of injections that are offered out there. So we're going to kind of dive in a kind of 20,000-foot overview of what are these injections that are offered in the sports medicine community and why you may consider one versus another. But really, we're going to talk about the mechanisms behind them today. So like, how do they work? What's our understanding of why we do these injections in terms of what is the mechanism for causing their action? And you know, how do they help with pain? How do they help with function? So that's kind of what we're going to deep dive in here a little bit. And like I said, you know, we've talked about previously when a good candidate is. And you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to build on top of that, right? So we talk about who's a good candidate and then we're going to talk about, you know, this is like helping understand which injection might be a good fit for you. But once again, if you aren't a good candidate, then it doesn't matter what you want from injection, then it's not going to be, you know, what you need to, to kind of heal in long-term of good success. But at the end of the day, we're going to kind of break it down here. There are four main groups of injections. So the first one is anti-inflammatory, right? So when you think of anti-inflammatories, the gold standard is steroids. So steroids are, are big, heavy hitters, you know, they're essentially like grenades, just throwing them in there. And they're going to have a huge impact of decreasing inflammation now without side effects, which we'll talk about in a future podcast as well. But on the other side of that, we have the steroids, and then we have NSAIDs, or what those stands for is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So once again, in the title of it is saying non-steroidal, meaning steroids are pretty much the baseline, like, hey, this is like the gold standard, and then NSAIDs are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, still working in anti-inflammatory respect, but different mechanism from steroids. So that's group number one. Group number two is then visco supplementation. So visco, when you think about something being viscous, it's nice and thick. Visco supplementation typically are full of hyaluronic derivatives. So hyaluronic acid derivatives, these are, we'll talk about the mechanism there, but essentially the idea behind this is we're trying to create more quote unquote lubrication inside the joint. And that's like what the general idea of visco supplementation injections are. Then the third category are is regenerative medicine. So this is a huge term, a broad term. It covers a bunch of different things. The main ones we're gonna talk about today things like dextrose prolotherapy, PRP or platelet-rich plasma, and stem cells. And then maybe there's some other stuff on there as well. But regenerative medicine is just an umbrella that it kind of falls under. You know, one medication and one injection is not necessarily all of regenerative medicine. Regenerative medicine is this huge umbrella term covering for tons and tons of different things. And it's quite frankly, the wild west out there right now in terms of injections in sports medicine community. We'll talk about the issues that we have with regenerative medicine potentially as we go along here in the series. But Understanding what that means by regenerative medicine, like so we're talking about dextrose prolotherapy, PRP, and stem cells this is the general understanding of it. In the fourth category we're going to talk about here is kind of hydrodissections. And so a hydrodissection sounds really intense and it sounds like it's not a good thing, like you don't want to dissect anything. But what we mean by that is a hydrodissection is typically a procedure where you're having some sort of injectate come in, go around a nerve and trying to free up or release that nerve. And so a hydrodissection is typically with some sort of more innocuous type of solution. And you're going there trying to free up that nerve. But like I said, long story short, the vast, vast majority of the time, this is nerve related. You can do it in, with a fat pad. So a lot of times like the patella or the fat pad behind the patella, you can do a hydrodissection there and kind of separate layers. So anytime you're trying to separate something from something else, you can use a hydrodissection for that. And so all right, so now we've kind of covered the big four categories. I kind of want to move on and talk about, you know, what is the mechanism behind each individual injection? So first we're going to start with steroids, right? We've talked about that. These are not anabolic steroids, so they're not going to get too jacked. You know, and the first things first, I have to say steroids, you know, not anabolic. These are actually the catabolic type. So there are some effects there that can be, you know, detrimental as well. But overall, these are the standard for anti-inflammatory medications. And there's a reason that non-steroidals are called non-steroidals because these steroid injections or steroid, you know, oral steroids, they work really, really well. They're very powerful anti-inflammatories. And so comparing medication to those can be helpful. 
But once again, they have different mechanisms. So the mechanism for steroids, typically, like I said, you might hear medications called like triamcinolone, dexamethasone, or betamethasone. You know, typically triamcinolone is the most common injectate that I've seen in terms of injections, but we also have seen dexamethasone used as well and other steroids, but typically you're gonna see triamcinolone. And so all those fall under the category of steroids. And the mechanism for these, these take some time to take action. So the way I explain is when you inject a steroid or you ingest a steroid, what has to happen is the medication has to come into the cells, get absorbed, you know, obviously into the circulation that gets into the cells. And then those the medication has to make its way into the actual nucleus of the cell. So it binds to a steroid receptor inside the nucleus of the cells. And then what it does, it affects gene expression. When I say gene expression, that means inside the nucleus kind of we're having, you know, our genes being read and then from there we're making proteins of it. And so what the steroids actually do is they go into there, kind of bind the receptors and then affect what genes are coming out and how they're, how they're read and what proteins are coming out. So that's what it was. Next up, this takes a while. So eventually though, this produces an anti-inflammatory effect and also down-regulates pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it prevents the release of prostaglandins and leukotrienes and also inhibits the release of arachidonic acid. And all those terms are sounding really fancy, like prostaglandins, leukotrienes, long story short, it takes a while. So when you inject, it has to go in there, incorporate in, into the cell, and kind of changes things from there. What it does is it produces anti-inflammatory effects and diminishes the pro-inflammatory effects. So that's kind of what's going on there when we think about it. And it inhibits things like prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and the release of arachidonic acid, which we'll talk about here in a second with NSAID. So long story short, powerful, takes a little time because it has to go in there and get incorporated and kind of hang out and you know, affect what's being made. On the other hand, we have NSAIDs, or non-steroidals, right? So they're not like steroids. They're different. They are separate from that. Typically, you'll hear names like ibuprofen, naproxen, ketorolac. Those are the big ones. In terms of injection, I have not seen too many things other than ketorolac. There are some other NSAIDs that I've seen some papers on, but the vast majority of the time is going to be ketorolac. And like I said, from an injection standpoint, that's going to be the main one we see. And what do NSAIDs do? Well, NSAIDs inhibit cyclooxygenase pathway. So cyclooxygenase is a pathway that which kind of usually is pro-inflammatory. And what this does is it is a COX inhibitor. So NSAIDs inhibit this COX enzyme. And what does that decreases enzyme, um, you know, enzyme activations or decreases inflammation. But then uh, what's nice about this is that it's a much more targeted tar pathway, right? So if you think about steroids they are kind of decreasing a lot of things, a big, big group of things, whereas the NSAIDs are much more inhibited to just the cyclooxygenase pathway. So it's more targeted, have a narrower therapeutic target. And so we're not hitting as many things. And the big reason we talk about steroids, they kind of shut down everything, whereas NSAIDs are more selective, which can be very helpful as well. And you might be asking like, well, what is cyclooxygenase? So it's abbreviated COX and COX actually converts arachidonic acid into thromboxanes, prostaglandins, prostacyclins, once again, all these pro-inflammatory things. So if we shut down COX, we're not able to convert this arachidonic acid into these thromboxanes, prostaglandins, and other pro-inflammatory things. And on top of that, COX can also have one and two. So there's two different enzymes there. So COX-1 and COX-2 and enzymes are described as either specific or non-specific. All the ones I mentioned before in terms of like naproxen, ibuprofen, ketorolac, all those are nonspecific, meaning they inhibit COX-1 and 2. And the differentiating factor is that COX-1 is found all throughout the body, including things like your stomach, your kidneys, whereas COX-2 is expressed in the body like when it's it's inducibly expressed. So what that means is like when the inflammation process starts, COX-2 is kind of ramped up, whereas COX-1 is like everywhere. Um, so if you know we don't have inflammation, we don't have a lot of COX-2 activated, whereas once we start with inflammation, COX-2 activates. And so what these selective NSAIDs do, sometimes there are a couple of them here that like silicoxib is an example for orally, is you just hit 
COX-2. And so instead of COX-1, the reason we like that is because COX-1 is, like I said, found all throughout the body. So if you're inhibiting that, you can have issues like can lead to ulcers. That's a big thing. Can be hard on your kidneys. And so if you have selective NSAIDs, that's ideal. A lot of times from an injection standpoint, we don't have that. But once again, what these NSAIDs are going to do is they're going to inhibit these COX enzymes. So if you're non-selective, it's going to be both of them. If you're selective, it's just COX-2, but typically both of them. And like I said, it's going to decrease the ability uh, to produce inflammatory cytokines and inflammatory markers. And so once again, decreasing inflammation by a more direct and narrow pathway. And then moving on to viscose supplementation, once again, these are all hyaluronic acid derivatives. You know, you might have heard hyaluronic acid before, probably heard it like in dermatology commercials for like, oh, this product has hyaluronic acid. So it's a very common solution and they're found all throughout the body. Like I said, there's various name brands to the injectable ones. You know, I'm not going to necessarily name name brands, but they're pretty much all the same. They're all hyaluronic acid derivatives, but they're pretty similar despite the advertising you might see. And the thing is hyaluronic acid is found naturally in the synovial fluid and in the cartilage of each joint. And so the question is like, how does it work? Well, in osteoarthritis, it seems like the concentration of hyaluronic acid actually decreases as well as the size of these hyaluronic acid molecules. So the viscosity of the overall synovial fluid decreases. So the idea is that by injecting that, we're hopefully increasing that viscosity back again. The thing is, what's kind of tricky is that it's actually clear from the joint in like 17 to 36 hours they've done studies on. So, you know, when we say we're injecting and giving you a quote unquote lubrication shot, like, well, it's gone in pretty much a day. And so it can't just be the fact that it's there and we have more of it providing lubrication. So there are some various proposed mechanisms. One being that the injection stimulates actually the native hyaluronic acid. And another idea is that it has potential anti-inflammatory properties as well. And so we're not entirely sure how this mechanism works, but like I said, once again, the idea is that you natively have some of this in your joint. And so what we want to try to do is resupplement that. And we found that we have a decreased amount in arthritis and that's the main use case for this. But so we're, we kind of look at saying, Hey, okay, we have this decreased amount of this in arthritis. Let's try to give you some of that back and see what happens from there. So that's the general idea for viscal supplementation. All right, next we're moving on to regenerative medicine. Like I said, this is a huge umbrella term and the three main ones we're going to talk about today are dextrose prolotherapy, platelet-rich plasma, and stem cells. And so we talked before, right, our anti-inflammatory ones with our NSAIDs and steroids, we're trying to calm things down and decrease inflammation. This is kind of the opposite of that. You know, this is kind of a pro-inflammatory environment. The idea is to re-stimulate the inflammatory process to kind of start the natural healing process back. So before we're trying to quiet things down and here we're actually saying, hey, we want your body, we want to stim stimulate things back up. We want to rev it back up so your body starts that natural healing process and go from there. Um, and despite the name, there's actually no good data that anything's actually regenerative. Therefore, it's kind of like a big misnomer. You know, there are some lab studies showing that, hey, we might have increased, you know, these growth factors or this or that. But like, when I say regenerative, we're not like injecting someone and they're just magically growing cartilage back yet. Like we're not there by any stretch of the imagination. So if someone, you know, is kind of saying that is the case for regenerative medicine, I'd be a little, I'd be skeptical for sure, because we definitely don't have the data for that. But like I said, it sounds cool, regenerative medicine, so that's why everyone goes with it, but uh, it is not necessarily like re regenerating anything. You know, I think a better name is kind of a pro-inflammatory injection is the way I think about it. And the first one we're gonna talk about is dextrose prolotherapy. So this is a technique that introduces a small amount of an irritant kind of uh, solution to your desired location. So what I mean by that is we're using a certain amount of solution, meaning dextrose, so sugar, right? We're just using sugar and we're injecting it to a desired location. Dextrose is the ideal injectate for this. I should say prolotherapy can technically be many, many different things and PRP probably falls underneath the umbrella, but specifically dextrose we're gonna talk about here. It's ideal because it's water soluble, right? You have it naturally, you have lots of sugar in your bloodstream and it can be injected with large amounts that are really safe as well. So the idea is that, like I said, we have this solution and we inject it into an area and re-stimulate 
inflammation kind of restart the healing process. And the mechanism behind it is unclear. Like most things here with injections, we kind of like shrug our shoulders like, I, I don't know, like we were trying this and it seems to work and there seem to be good outcomes, but we definitely don't understand all the mechanisms. One idea is that potentially dextrose dehydrates cells at the injection site, which leads to a local tissue trauma, which then in turn attracts a bunch of different healing factors. And like I said, at the end of the day though, when we do these injections, so kind of stepping back prolotherapy, a lot of times what we think about is we see three main sections, meaning an inflammatory phase, then a prolific phase, then a remodeling phase. So the idea is that hopefully, you know, phase one inflammation, we just restart this process saying, hey, like reminding your body, hey, don't forget about this thing. It's here. The way I explain it to patients quite frequently is that our body does a good job of making things just good enough. Like you kind of get off the back burner. Like, okay. Like, you know, this achy knee, like I, I've calmed it down enough. It's not my biggest priority. I've got all these other big things that I need to worry about. And it kind of calms it down just enough. And so our idea is kind of to inject these medications and then kind of say, Hey, like, don't forget about me. I'm still here. That's typically how I explain it. Obviously it's very simplified, but that's like the inflammatory phase. We're like restarting it. And after that, we hopefully have some proliferative phase where we start having some growth factors and things growing and then remodeling and kind of making some changes inside that tissue as well. So we'll see kind of how it goes in terms of that's the general framework that I think about, but at the end of the day, this irritation causes inflammation, right? And so when we have inflammation, this triggers the release of different growth factors and collagen deposition, which then leads to proliferation and strengthening of the connective tissue. That's the understanding. That's the kind of in the Petri dish idea of what goes on. Do we have awesome evidence of that in a human being that actually happens? Mm, I mean, not really, but generally that's what we're looking for. Like from our mechanistic standpoint, that's the idea is that we have inflammation makes growth factors. And then we have lay down collagen leads to proliferation of connective tissue. That's the idea from a dextrose prolotherapy perspective. Also, it's important to know that concentrations greater than 10% are considered inflammatory and less than 10% are non-inflammatory. I mentioned that because a lot of times the concentrations we use for certain things like tendons are about 25% dextrose. Whereas if we use concentrations for what we'll talk about later with hydrodissections, a lot of times it's less than 10%. So 10% seems to be that threshold where if it's less than that, it's not inflammatory. If it's above that, it is inflammatory. All right, next we're moving on to PRP or platelet-rich plasma. This is kind of a hot new craze and it's a pretty fancy procedure. What happens is we take out your blood. So we draw blood and we spin it down in a centrifuge until we have concentrated platelets. So we discard the red blood cells and then we have also some platelet poor plasma, which you get rid of. And we're left with these concentrated platelets or AKA liquid gold. I call it liquid gold because it actually has this like gold hue. And like when you're walking it across the room to the patient, you're like, this is a really expensive injection. So it's pretty much like liquid gold. Um, the reason we do this though is that platelets contain lots of things called alpha granules, which inside of them have an abundance of growth factors. And so we try to increase, have a higher concentration of platelets to get these alpha granules, which bring growth factors there. And then like I said, on top of that, platelets are typically the initiators of the healing process, and but not all the tissues have a, a large amount of them there. So we're kind of offering the body, hey, here's kind of like the scaffolding and the framework or the, the materials you need to kind of start the healing process. We're delivering it right to the spot where we need to do it. And on top of that, also platelets in PRP have various growth factors, chemokines, cytokines, and other plasma protein in it. So once again, we are still triggering that process, right? So we're going there with a needle, in a foreign substance, we're injecting it. And that's kind of creating this inflammatory response like, whoa, what's going on? And with that, we hopefully this brings beneficial changes, right? So we are causing inflammation and giving, you know, building blocks there. So kind of the analogy is we're starting a fire, but then we're also having the fire department right there. That's like the idea we're thinking for, you know, hopefully it's not as bad as a fire and leaves the damage, but that's the general thought is that we're going to stir things up and then kind of calm things down. And last, we have stem cells for the regenerative medicine section. Stem cells, these are often obtained from either bone marrow or adipose tissue. Bone marrow, a lot of times it's from the hip or the iliac crust, and adipose tissue is usually from the stomach. So this is by far and away the most involved process. If you thought PRP was fancy, this is even more fancy. 
Once again, the idea here is to regenerate tissue through an augmented healing process. So, you know, the bone marrow and adipose is full of what we call hematopoietic cells. So these have lots of different things in them. They can have supportive stromal cells. They can have stem cells, like I said. And these stromal cells promote the proliferation and differentiation of hematopoietic cells. And then they also contain other things like fibroblasts, macrophages, adipocytes, osteoblasts, osteoclasts, endothelial cells, and then these mesenchymal stem cells. So long story short, let's take a step back there. Inside of these bone marrow and adipose tissue, we have lots and lots of things that kind of can be the foundation and the start of creating cells, creating bone cells, breaking down bone cells, building up things, lots and lots of things that we can do. And then we also have those mesenchymal stem cells. And mesenchymal stem cells, they're kind of progenitor cells, which means they have the capability of possibly becoming numerous different types of cells like osteoblasts, adipocytes, chondroblasts, which those things make structures like cartilage, bone, fat, muscle ligaments. So we take a step back. The idea is that these mesenchymal stem cells, they're kind of in this state where it's like, hey, you know, I could go one way or another. So it's like a very, um, it's like a youth who's very impressionable, right? Saying, hey, I could go down one of these pathways. It just depends on the situation. So we have these stem cells, the idea is that, hey, these can become cartilage if we need to. These can become, you know, ligaments if we need to. That's the general idea behind that. Once again, it's not as slam dunk on that, but that's the general idea behind injecting stem cells that gives your body not only, you know, the baseline scaffolding stuff, but it gives it the whole blueprint saying, hey, we have the understanding and we can become these cells. We know how to get there. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put all these factors and these stem cells at the right location at the right time to help your body heal. And it's no different. These are very expensive. We'll talk more about stem cell injections, but that's the general idea. Um, like I said, and that's the idea behind the mechanism, which is a little hit or miss in terms of whether that's actually happening in our body is questionable, but that's the general idea for why we would have that injection or why someone would do it. And then finally, our last section is hydrodissections. Hydrodissections here, we're using a fluid injectate to separate a nerve from a suspected area of compression. And like I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be a nerve, it can be any sort of tissue plane that we feel would benefit from um, some sort of separation. These are always ultrasound guided because you can't just go in there and just guess that you're hydrodissecting a nerve. So these are ones we always use. We can find the nerve, go in there, inject around it. And in this, they can have multiple different substances like lidocaine, normal saline, dextrose, all these things can be included. And at the end of the day, like I mentioned before, dextrose is pretty common for these, but it's usually much less common concentrated. So it's about 5%. Like we talked about before that 10% threshold, you know, above 10% is usually inflammatory below 10 is not. So we're well below that. So it's not in an inflammatory perspective. And the idea and the mechanism behind the hydrosection is that it's thought to separate nerves from the surrounding soft tissue, which may actually, you know, release the nerves from some very some smaller nerves and some smaller nerve endings, which may help alleviate pain and also help the nerve potentially move or glide more freely. Like I said, that's the idea behind it, whether that's actually happened. TBD um, outcomes can be pretty decent, but that's the idea. And then there also seems to be some sort of pharmacological effect on nerves due to the dextrose, which like I said, it may decrease the inflammation, like neurogenic inflammation, the inflammation of the nerves may lessen the neuropathic pain by multiple mechanisms. So we found that actually the dextrose may have some sort of actual pharmacological effect rather than just mechanical, right? So for me, this is twofold. Mechanical meaning we're separating the nerve from some other structure or, you know, one structure from another. That's what we're looking for. And then on top of that, we might have some sort of pharmacological effect. And with the dextrose, meaning that, hey, we might have may affect the nerves the way we sense pain. And so at the end of the day, that's the general gist of the different type of injectates and why we think about using them. So we're never going to have a perfect understanding of what's going on, but I think it's very important to understand these so we can select the right medication for the right time. And so at the end of the day, you know, when we're saying, Hey, how do I select the right injection? You know, first questions first is, you know, what is the purpose of this injection? Is it trying to calm things down? Well, then anti-inflammatory, maybe a steroid or NSAID is a reasonable approach. If someone's saying, Hey, I 
have arthritis and I don't want to use something like steroid or anti-inflammatory, then maybe we consider visceral supplementation. You know, or you say, hey, actually this injury has healed for a while, but it hasn't healed fully. I want to try the regenerative approach. That's when I'd consider something like dextrose prolotherapy or PRP. And like I said, stem cells are on the list. They're always on last on my list though, because of the cost for most people is just exuberant. And so I'm going to go deeper and deeper into indications and risks for things in the future. But I just want to say, hey, this is the idea for why we do what we do in terms of here's the mechanism for each injection. This is our understanding as to why we would choose these rather than saying, hey, everyone gets a steroid. You know, we have lots of options and we can try these things and based off of, hey, what we think is best for the patient in this specific spot. And once again, I say that time and time again, every patient is different. Every patient is an individual. And so we're going to kind of tailor our treatment choice to the certain circumstances they have going on in their life. So once again, I hope you, I hope this was helpful for you. I hope it helped you get a better understanding of how we do some of the injections, why we do them, you know, do the actual work, the rationale behind them. And so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening though. And like I said, I am starting a newsletter. So if you want to join the email list, you can get research sent to you during the week. I said, it's going to be short. I promise it's going to take you only a couple minutes to read just an article that I've read throughout the week that I thought was interesting that I can share with you. And if you would be so kind, if you could please leave a five-star review, that would get the word out tremendously. It would really help. If not, if you could like, comment, subscribe, or share with a friend, that would mean the world to me. But thanks so much for listening. I really, truly appreciate it. Now get off your device, go outside, have a great rest of your day. Take care. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.